Uh, if you have any questions at the end, uh, we have a special service next week where we're just basically going to look at questions, uh, your questions, and we'll look at as many as we can. So if there's any questions that you have following uh, this morning, please do, please do send them to us. I'll send you the, give you the email address a, a little bit later on. Um, so let's pray as we start to look at this very important subject. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can meet together to explore who Jesus is and his reality, his relevance to us. And we pray, Father, that you'd help us to, to do that. If we're a Christian already, that we would be encouraged to continue to believe in Jesus and to follow him cl closely. And if we're not yet a Christian, if we're still thinking about things not yet convinced, we pray, Father, for the help of the Holy Spirit to help us all to see who Jesus is, that he is real and relevant and crucial. And we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Well, uh, thank you again for, for joining us. So uh, a little while ago, I was uh, listening to a, a talk radio program uh, about, uh, well, very, a, dis a discussion about a subject that wasn't actually related to Christianity, but kind of Christianity came up. And the thought that um, Christianity and other religions, too, in that uh, discussion on that program, well, it's all about faith, really. And uh, reality doesn't uh, really matter. What is true doesn't really matter but as long as people believe. It's fine for those who do believe if it makes them feel good, but it's not true. Uh, but that really doesn't matter as long as it's a, it makes people feel better. It's a kind of a crutch. Uh, and, you know, that's that was perspective on on Christianity as well as other religions. Well, that may be true for other religions, that the reality doesn't really matter as long as there are something that makes you feel better. But is that the case for Christianity? Can we accept that truth doesn't really matter? when it comes to Christianity. People do dismiss the Bible and they dismiss the disciples of Jesus as ignorant, superstitious people, people who needed a good legend to believe, a crutch, a moral myth, if you like, to inspire them. But when you actually read that, particularly the sections in the Bible about Jesus, we can see very clearly it's not like that at all. It's very clear that one of the reasons why Jesus chooses 12 apostles was for them to be eyewitnesses and for them to reliably pass on their eyewitness account to others. Now, one of the myths that we have is that the New Testament was finished many, many years after the events, after the lifetimes of those original eyewitnesses. But when you look at, up the facts, we find that the New Testament was finished by around about 100 AD. And, and that's the whole of the New Testament. Now, Mark's gospel, one of the accounts about the life of Jesus, was probably written near the middle of the first century AD. So basically, all the New Testament was finished within the lifetimes of the original eyewitnesses, and that's very significant. If you use the same criteria to assess the New Testament as you would any other ancient literature, the New Testament is extremely reliable. There are more ancient manuscripts than any other classical ancient literature, and there are more manuscripts written closer to the original events than any other classical literature. And that, that again, is very significant. And so we see it's wrong to assume that, that Christians, the early Christians, were not concerned for truth, that they were not concerned for accuracy. Now, we all know, don't we, that eyewitnesses are important. And the more eyewitnesses that we have to an event, generally speaking, is, is a positive thing. It's a positive thing. 
Now, if there's an accident in the road, the police will ask several eyewitnesses. If there's a crime being committed, the police will look for eyewitnesses. And even though those eyewitnesses might have seen things from different perspectives, one person might have been one side of the road, another person might have been up in the block of flats, another person might have been right on the scene, they will kind of work together from those eyewitnesses to try and establish the reality of the events. Now, Jesus chose 12 particular eyewitnesses, and that's, again, very important to remember. And also, we know that there were more than just the 12 disciples. There were men and women, and there were lots of other disciples. There was a, an occasion later on where, where 120 disciples were gathered in a room praying. That's after Jesus rose again and went back to heaven. So there were many more than just the 12, but there were 12 in particular who were chosen to be key eyewitnesses. There's also another incident in the New Testament referred to, and that is, again, after Jesus had risen from the dead, his period while he was still on earth during those, those days, those weeks, about 40 days, there was a, an occasion when Jesus appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses. And that's referred to as, for example, in the case of, well, if you don't believe me, there's still many of these 500 eyewitnesses still around and you can go and ask them. And so there's eyewitness testimony. Now, Jesus instilled into his disciples their responsibility to be eyewitnesses. He says in Luke 24, you are witnesses of these things. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says there that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, those are the disciples, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, the man who prepared the scene before Jesus came and began his work, the man who, if you like, was a warm-up act for the Lord Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. He is quoted as saying, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. We can see the importance of eyewitness. We can see the importance of testimony here. The apostle Peter was preaching after Jesus had returned back to heaven on the day of Pentecost. And notice what he says in Acts 2. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. So the importance of eyewitness was very key to those people 2,000 years ago. They weren't ignorant peasant people who just didn't believe uh, in accuracy and reality. The Apostle John, he was the one who wrote uh, one of the gospel accounts. He wrote the book of Revelation and a number of other letters in the New Testament. And in one of those letters that he wrote to the early Christians there, he notice how he emphasizes in the introduction the reality and the historicity of Jesus in 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard and you also, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And these eyewitnesses these apostles who were so utterly convinced don't forget that around the time of Jesus death and and even in the early days after he'd risen from the dead they still weren't sure they over a period of time were convinced by the appearances of Jesus they weren't easy believers they had to be convinced and it's clear to see that those early Christians were not happy with simply a moral myth about Jesus but about establishing the reality that he really did exist they were eyewitnesses of his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And they believed in forgiveness through faith in him. And they spread that message to far, far and wide. 
and they were willing to risk their lives for it. Now, would you be willing to risk your life for a lie? You might be deluded and uh, might have a problem of delusion about something, but when you have been taken, when it's taken you time to be convinced about the facts, when you were skeptical to start with, and when people are threatening you with torture or death to, to, to deny the simple truth about Jesus Christ, well, would you be willing to risk your life for a lie? Well, these men, and we know women as well, were persecuted and many were killed for their eyewitness testimony. Nearly all the apostles were, were killed. They all had times in prison because of their testimony about Jesus. The apostle John was in exile when he wrote the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So we can see that not only were these eyewitnesses very concerned to pass on a verbally accurate message about Jesus, and they did that at the risk of their lives, but also several of them were involved in writing down an accurate record about Jesus. And we have a reliable record too. Matthew was a disciple. He was an eyewitness. Matthew's gospel. Mark's gospel. What's Mark's gospel? Mark's gospel is Peter's account. Peter was an eyewitness. John, another eyewitness, he wrote down his own account too. And all these who wrote down these gospel accounts were eye and ear witnesses. Now, Luke is a bit different. Luke was a doctor of the day. He worked alongside the Apostle Paul, and he met and knew many others in the early days of the church. He interviewed and he went around with and worked with many of those early Christians, those eyewitnesses. Now, notice in Luke chapter 1 how he goes about writing his gospel account in the introduction. He's, he's writing it, addressing it to a Roman official uh, called Theophilus. And this is what he says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So that just blows out the water that the early Christians were ignorant people who just thought that a myth was enough, that legend was enough. No, these were convinced and they were concerned about the reality, the historicity, the accuracy of the account of the life and teaching, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we need to move on. We don't have time to go into great detail now, but we also find references to Jesus of Nazareth by historians of the time who were not Christians. Just mentioned two of them for you. There was a Roman called Tacitus and there was a Jewish historian called Josephus. And in their writings, they refer to a Jesus of Nazareth. We could say a lot more about that, but we won't. Let's move on to the, to the next heading, second of three headings. And that is that Jesus is relevant. Jesus is relevant. You might be thinking there, well, what if someone existed for real 2000 years ago? How is that relevant to me today? in the 21st century. Well, if the Bible is a reliable account, if those original eyewitnesses really saw what they tell us, it is something very significant and it's something that happened in history and therefore we can't just dismiss it, ignore it. If Jesus is the son of God, as he claimed, who came to save you, who died and rose again, who came to bring us forgiveness, if this is the simple message that many early Christians were tortured and killed for, then we can't dismiss it. We can't ignore it. 
If Jesus is who he claims to be, then he's alive. And then therefore he must be logically someone that you need to think about. He must be relevant even now to you many years later. And he's relevant because he can meet your greatest needs of peace, forgiveness and hope. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, the guilt and the pressures and the stresses and the, uh, of life, all you who are weary and burdened, uh, and I will give you rest, he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't there in you an inner longing for a rest for your soul? Jesus is relevant to you. Don't you need a spiritual peace? Don't you long for your heart to feel at home, for your heart to feel at home with God? Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Don't you need forgiveness? Luke 24, Jesus says about repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in the name, his name, to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. There's a message of forgiveness that is the heart of the Christian message that goes out. Jesus has paid for our sins and he's given this message of forgiveness to spread around the world, even to Fernwood, even to the service online this morning. Now, we, we had uh, Micah refer to how hard it is to be a Christian in secondary school. And it is a challenge. We do need to pray for him and for other uh, young students who are seeking to live for Jesus in school life. Now, some schools have a uniform code, don't they? If a student goes in without the correct uniform, or if they, if they kind of sin or fall short in that way, then they could get sent home. They're not wearing a tie, not wearing the jacket, not wearing what the rules state. Now, of course, some people argue against uniforms. And anyway, those rules about uniforms are only made up conventions and traditions. There's nothing morally better about wearing a uniform, is there? But parents and students usually agree when they start at that school, I think there's something you have to sign, that those are the rules. So we understand that, don't we? But let's think of something more serious. If a nurse or a doctor goes into an operation theatre with dirty hands, with no face mask, coughing and sneezing over everybody, including the patient on the table, that would be morally wrong, wouldn't it? Because that nurse or doctor is a health risk spreading disease, bacteria, viruses, maybe, in that very important room, that, if you like, holy room of the hospital theatre. Someone may have to call security to get the, the doctor or nurse out who's behaving that way. It's a very serious thing. Now, in the Bible, it mentions sin. It sounds like a very old-fashioned word, a hard concept for us to, to get into our heads. But a sin or sinning is like introducing a virus, it's like introducing a bacteria into a clean hospital theater. For those who are more mechanical amongst us, it's like putting sand into the mechanism of an amazing machine that will ruin it. For those of us who are, who are artistic, it's like slashing and daubing a beautiful piece of art, a beautiful work of art. Now the Bible makes a stark claim, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we all have consciences and we know the reality of that. 
I'm sure. When everything is quiet, which is rare in our world, isn't it? We often fill our minds with noise, our earphones in, we're listening to this, that and the other. We fill our minds with noise. It's very rare in our, in our society where we just really stop and, and think. Maybe it's a little bit easier for some people in lockdown, but even so, we like to fill our minds with all sorts of things to distract us from, from the difficult things around us, but also some of the things that we need to consider deep in our hearts. But when it's just you, your, it's your heart, and it's God, then we know that there are things that we've said, things that we thought, things that we've done that either hurt others, maybe even damaged ourselves, but certainly things that we know that love won't do, that love shouldn't do. And all this is a sin against God, our creator. Ultimately, we, we hurt each other, but ultimately all this lacking love and not showing love as we should is sin against our creator who made us and who loves us. Society may call some sins little or even white, which is actually not politically correct, is it, to call a sin white? Uh, and it's not biblical either. See, it's not true. Some sins obviously have a greater impact, a more obvious impact, but every little piece of lovelessness to others, every lie, every bit of dishonesty, and so on, every bit of self-centeredness, every bit of greed, hatred, all these things, all this lovelessness towards God and towards others, it's, it's a, like a virus in the operating theater. It's like sand in the mechanism. It's like some desecration of beauty that all adds up to a warring, self-centered, damaged, polluted, hungry, and hurting world. Sin is very serious. Now, God would not be just, and God would not be God, really, if there was no consequence to sin, if there was no punishment to come, if there was no just point of justice ahead. But because God loves us, he was willing to provide a way of forgiveness so that we can be, not experience his judgment, but we can experience his love. At his own expense, God did something so that individuals, so that you and I, can come to God, we can confess our sins, and we can be forgiven through faith in Jesus. Now, there's an account of a miracle in the New Testament. Jesus has just said that a man suffering from paralysis was forgiven, and the religious leaders in the room grumbled and objected that he had no authority to do so. Jesus says this, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Sometime later, Jesus went to the cross to pay for that man's sins, to pay for our sins. He went there to endure suffering and to pay the legal penalty, the legal penalty that God demands for, for sin, so that those who believe in him can be forgiven. He died to take the punishment so that all those who trust in him can have the slate wiped clean, can be forgiven. So there is an answer to guilt. There is peace with God. There is forgiveness, all through faith in Jesus. And he has the power and he has the authority to do these things and to do it for you. Jesus is relevant for you. Now, that miracle of healing, as well as showing his power to forgive our sins, if you like to clear the legal uh, accusation against us, also gives us a picture of hope. There's peace, forgiveness, and hope in Jesus. Hope for now and for the future. 
Jesus can intervene in our lives in the present. He can touch our lives and help us. We heard Debbie in her testimony, didn't we? Explaining how God has helped her, helped, helped her to change from the inside out, as it were. There is hope. Jesus can intervene in our lives in the here and now. But ultimately, that healing miracle and the other miracles of Jesus point to a future with him where there'll be no more sickness, no more viruses, no more pain, no more death. There's hope. And Jesus gives us that hope. And he's able and willing. And that's important. Jesus is able and willing to help you. Not just someone who helps others. You might be impressed, for example, with the character and the power of Jesus. You might be impressed with him as a person out there of the past. Maybe believe he's real. Maybe drawn to him as that wonderful savior. And others seem to be helped by him and it's great for them. But is he willing to help you? Is he willing to be relevant to you personally? Is he relevant to you and your issues, your sins? Does he love you? Not just others, but you. Well, there was another incident where a man was considered untouchable. He literally would be touched by no one except others who maybe had the same disease as he did. He had a terrible skin disease, leprosy, and no one would come close to him. He had to ring a bell and shout unclean so that people would keep away from him. He was an untouchable in society. His family and friends would never be able to touch him or hug him. He would never know that touch of love. He was an outcast, literally. But he comes to Jesus. He sees something in Jesus and he comes to him. He's still not understanding exactly that Jesus is willing. And it says in Mark chapter 1, a man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees. If you're willing, you can make me clean. And it says here something very stark and significant. Jesus was indignant. That's a very strong word. Jesus was indignant. Was it, what was he indignant at? Was he indignant at the, the horror of what this disease had done to this man? Was he indignant at the way that this disease had separated him from his fellow human beings? The way that people were treating him unkindly as, as an outcast? Was he indignant also how that, that the, the view of himself, who loved this man so much, had been so obscured by this man's own sinfulness, because we're all sinners, and by the, the expectations of society that have been poured into his head, that this man felt that Jesus might not be willing to touch him and to heal him. Jesus was indignant. But what does he do? He reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus is relevant to you. His love can reach and touch you. You can have his peace, his forgiveness and his hope. He is willing. And then lastly, we see that Jesus is not only real and relevant, but he is also crucial. Now, one objection to the idea of taking Jesus seriously is fear and a reaction to extremism. And we do see religious extremism, don't we, in our world? And that puts people off taking religion seriously, taking Christianity seriously. Now, it is true that many people have claimed to do many things in the name of religions, including Christianity. Things that have not been right, things that have been awful, and that is a, a, a reality. And we know that people will use God and they will use religion 
and even atheistic ideologies to justify many terrible things. In history, we know that Hitler's deranged ideology sent six million plus to their deaths in concentration camps. Atheistic communism in the Soviet Union is said to have exterminated 70 million people in similar kind of concentration camps. In some cases, following the ideology or the religion to the letter will justify bad means to the ends. I'm told that it was uh, Stalin who said that uh, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. Well, it obviously came from someone who saw that, uh, that the ends justify the means. Now, even if all those religions and faiths and ideologies were stopped overnight, people would find other excuses in time to do bad things. It's sadly human nature, isn't it? But here's a challenge for you. Read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Read them with an open mind and in context, because it's, you can always take things out of context. But read them with an open mind and in context and ask yourself the question. If I was to commit to and to follow Jesus fully and completely, what kind of person would I be and what could, kind of world would I be helping to create? Now, let me give you a clue. I really, really would encourage you to do that. But let me give you a clue. Jesus never fought and never incited a war. He told his disciples to put away the sword. He spoke out against hypocrisy and he touched the lives of many weak and vulnerable people. Now, read about him for yourself. What kind of world would it be if we all followed Jesus fully and wholeheartedly? Well, that raises the question, is Jesus unique and therefore is he crucial? Is he unique and is he crucial? Well, there are many religions and, and many religious leaders down through the years. Is Jesus just one of, of many roads to God or is he the only way? Is Jesus a lifestyle choice or is he actually crucial for you now what did jesus himself say he says i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me that's a very clear claim isn't it what did his first disciples say again the apostle peter preaching after the resurrection he said this salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved very stark clear statement now if jesus was crazy or a liar then we can dismiss what he claims and what his followers assert and therefore jesus well we can ignore what he says well you know i've read the gospels many times over the years and jesus doesn't sound crazy to me i put the challenge to you read the gospel accounts find out for yourself now i'm probably biased because i've experienced the love and care of jesus in my life for about 45 years since I became a Christian. So I'm pretty biased by now, after all those years. So I encourage you, check it out for yourself. Check it out for yourself. If you've not done it before, read the New Testament, read about Jesus. Now, if Jesus did rise from the dead, as so much evidence points to, there's been books written about that, then we have to take the unique claims of Jesus very seriously, don't we? He is not only making an offer of a lifestyle choice, he's actually making a choice putting a choice before us that is crucial think about it if faith in jesus is the only way to be saved then what will the result be of refusal to believe in jesus think about it now next week it's over to to your, your questions next week it's for you to uh 
bring your questions to us. And the service is going to be dotted through with answers to those questions. So you can see my email address there. Please do send me your, your questions or send them to someone else in the fellowship who you know, and then they can pass them on to me. But, but send us your questions and about Jesus, about the Bible, you know, objections to Christianity, maybe things that you're trying to work through, things you don't understand, send them to me by Thursday. So I've got a chance to, to do some study and to, to get your answers prepared. Uh, I, I won't say who the question is from unless you specifically tell me to. They can be anonymous. Uh, and I may bunch together any similar questions to, to save time. And if there are too many questions, then I'll either write to you personally in reply uh, or we can have another session in the future uh, looking at, at your questions. And it's for children. For adults, anyone, those, those of you who've been at the fellowship for a long time, those who've just visited us today, ask away. And I make an absolute guarantee to you that even if you're cross with me in your question, I will not be cross with you. Okay? I absolutely promise you I'll be absolutely polite to you, even if you get hot under the collar. So please do ask those questions and you can be guaranteed that you'll be given a polite and respectful reply. So no fear. And you can ask those questions. And if in the end you disagree with what we're presenting, then we'll still love you. And that's a promise. We'll still love you and we'll still pray for you. So feel free to, to ask us questions. It'd be great to, to have those. And I bet you there's questions that you really want to have answered uh, and uh, maybe just wait for the opportunity to, to ask them. But just as I close, let me say this. It might be that in your heart of hearts, you know right now that even though you've got some questions still to ask, that these, those questions you know aren't really fundamental to the issue. You know in your heart that you need to repent and believe in Jesus. Well, I would say don't wait to all those questions that are answered because we'll always have some kind of layer of, of questions, won't we, that we, we want to look at. It might be that in your heart of hearts, you know that the greatest issues you have are answered through faith in Jesus. That peace, that forgiveness, that hope. And, and you know, you know what you need to do. And I really encourage you, don't wait, but believe in Jesus for yourself. Trust in him. Acknowledge it. Confess your sins to him. Just get as soon as you can after the service, speak to him or even pray as we, we close in a short time. And just say to him that you're sorry for the wrong things that you've done and said and thought. Be open and honest that you are someone who lets God down, lets yourself down, lets others down, that we're, that we're sinners. The Bible says that. Be honest about it. Confess your sins to God and see and understand that Jesus is the one who came to die to save you. And, and simply confess your sins and Lord Jesus, please come into my life. I want, to, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to, to save me, to forgive me for, for my sins. And I want to know your peace and I want to follow you, Jesus. And make that a prayer in your own words, but make it a prayer of commitment to follow Jesus. There was uh, a man in the Bible who thought it was all over. He thought his life wasn't worth living. And he sees something in Paul and Silas, two of the apostles. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to uh, go through what the gospel is about who Jesus is to remind us of the fact that he is real, relevant to us all, and that he is the one who offers us a salvation that is crucial for us to consider and to accept. Lord God, we pray that you would help us 
to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we know that we're saved. And we pray this in his name. Amen.